Thanksgiving is my favorite American holiday in a very kind of self-centered society. It's a day set aside to give thanks to God and to other people. But I have to admit to you there's actually a much less uh, spiritual and sophisticated reason why uh, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. You see, when I was a kid, I was attacked by a turkey. I was pretty young, four or five, walking down to a lake, and I saw this turkey chick or poultry. That's pretty cute. I think I'll go, I'll pet it. And so I leaned down to pet the turkey chick, and I heard a rustling. It was mama turkey, all right? I'm curious, have you ever stopped and kind of looked closely at a turkey? I mean, you think of all the beautiful birds that God has made. The turkey's kind of an interesting one. It's got that nice plumage. It's kind of like a North American peacock. But have you ever looked at a turkey's head? The turkey has the head of a demon, all right? It has this, this thing off its nose. It's called a snood. It has no known purpose except to give us nightmares, okay? And so here I am. Here comes this demon-headed birdzilla out of the brush, and it starts chasing me. I want to let you know, I stood like the Texans at the Alamo. No, actually, I ran. And with all due respect to little girls, I screamed like a little girl while this thing's like pecking me on the back all the way back to my mom. I was like, turkey mama, meet my mama, and it ran off. (laughs) Now, in the turkey's defense, all that really happened is like the turkey ran to its mom and I ran to mine, but I was still terrified. So I told you, Thanksgiving is my favorite American holiday. Of course, towards the end of most November, somebody says, hey, Josh. Would you like a little bit more sweet potatoes? Like, no. Pass me some very deceased and very delicious turkey. (laughs) I was speaking recently at a church, and afterward, a licensed Christian therapist came up to me afterward. She hands me her card. She's like, if you need to talk about this, like, we can talk. I was like, it was just an illustration, but just to let you know, um, I have forgiven all turkeys, but turkey is still delicious, all right? In a similar way, the United States is my favorite country. And I know we have an international audience here. So I imagine most people around the world would say that their country is their favorite country. The United States history, though imperfect, is impressive. Thirteen small colonies stood up to a world empire and won. We set out to build a republic based on largely untested ideas, freedom and self-governance. But this was a very specific type of freedom. This is what I might call an ordered liberty. The idea being that we would build our lives and a society according to God's Good design, based on Judeo-Christian principles and moderate Enlightenment ideas. But like the earlier version of myself, I think the, the church was enjoying the blessings of ordered liberty when another version of liberty raised its ominous head. And this is not ordered liberty. This is what I might call an open license. This isn't a freedom to build a society according to God's good design. It is a freedom from God's design. Thank you very much. I don't believe in him. We're going to build it our own way. And actually, many of the things going on in our culture can be explained simply by the clash of these two views of freedom. And I'll sometimes mention that we are one nation under God. It's on our currency. But in a sense, we are becoming one nation over God in that we are over his guidance and his authority in our country. So in that context, here's the big idea for our time together today and tomorrow. We are called to follow Jesus in every area of our lives. And I so appreciated Brother Sisk's message last night, emphasizing the Great Commission. So we're called to follow Jesus in every area of our life. And that includes our role as citizen. But here's the billion-dollar question, and that's a million-dollar question adjusted for inflation. Uh, How exactly are we supposed to do that now in an increasingly plural and polarized society? Well, here's how. 
I want to give you a Dave Ramsey style. If you know Dave Ramsey, he has these baby steps in the financial arena. So a Dave Ramsey four-step guide to Christian citizenship. Now, Dr. Atkins mentioned that I do lead the Good Citizen Project, simply dedicated to equipping Christians to confidently, faithfully engage in public life. But our, our goal isn't just to engage government. Rather, it is to transform the United States through the power of the gospel. And I'll explain more as we go. Let's dive right in. Step number one, go over or review your role as citizen. These four steps will spell the word good, as in we are to be good citizens. If all goes as planned, we'll get through two of them today. In 2016, I heard a stat that actually burned my heart. It's one of the reasons I launched the Good Citizen Project. And that it was that about 60% of American Christians receive little to no biblical teaching or preaching on their role as citizen. And so today, I know many of you come here with lots of differing ideas. Maybe you've engaged in politics already. My encouragement to you is kind of, when was the last time that in this particular area of our life, we, we pushed pause, like time out, all right? Push the news media out of the way, political pundits, how grandpa did politics. What does God say about this area of our lives? And a big part of what we're trying to do is to rethink, all right, hold on, let's pause, just like everything else, let's stop and say, what does God say? And I spent a good bit of my time this morning on this because I could go into what's going on with litigation or what's going on in the political arena, but the most important thing I can share with you is not my opinion, but what God says. So let's, first of all, as we're, we're going through this, reviewing our role as citizen, let's hear from the greatest political scientist of all time. Many know him as Jesus of Nazareth, but he's also the king of kings. And so it's probably important to know what he thinks about this area. There's a famous verse that you're probably familiar with, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 22 and verse 21. Matthew 22, 21. If you remember the context of this verse, the Pharisees come to Jesus, they're always trying to trip him up, and they say, Jesus, are we supposed to pay taxes to the Romans? Everybody hates the Romans. Nobody wants to pay taxes to the Romans. And as Jesus often did, he answered the question with a question and said, all right, show me a coin. They show him a coin. He said, who's on the coin? They say, Caesar. And then he says this verse, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Two statements, incredibly profound. And I'll say, when Jesus said this, it was absolutely revolutionary, for reasons that I'll explain. Now, since Jesus was looking at a coin, it's probably important to know what was the coin. Well, it was a Roman denarius. It was the common coin of the, of the period. And on the front side of the coin was a picture of the emperor and an inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, a basic claim for civil obedience and respect. But on the back of the coin was the picture of Tiberius' mother and the inscription, highest priest. This was not a claim for civic obedience and respect. This was a claim for ultimate allegiance and worship to the Roman state. So in these two verses, Jesus lays out some incredibly profound principles about government and how we should see it. I want to roll through them. The first one is that we are Christians. And so if you kind of think about the back side of the coin... All right, when Jesus is looking at this coin, it's almost as if he's kind of looking at the back when he says, render unto God that which is God's. The simple idea being that government isn't God. And you think, well, this is a pretty simple idea. But not true if you look back through human history. Why? Because this is the first time that the idea of monarchy has been split from deity. Said differently, 
Like through the ages, every clown with a crown thought that they were God. And Jesus says, no, you're not God. Now, if you're looking at government, trying to understand its role, kind of vis-a-vis Jesus, he's saying, look, government's not God, and therefore there is a God that you must bow to and you must worship. I not kind of read Philippians 2.10 with this in mind until recently, but think about the political implications of this verse. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What kind of Lord? King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. We think about Jesus as he's born in the manger, and that's true, and he's with us. And that's a beautiful truth, and it speaks to our democratic sensibilities. But don't forget that when Jesus was born in the manger, he did not abdicate his authority. He is the high king of the universe who came and was born in a manger to inaugurate his revolutionary and redemptive reign. And he will one day return on a white horse with a host of heaven behind him to make all things new. We worship that king and that Lord. And what Jesus was saying is that there is only one king that is entitled to your ultimate allegiance and worship And Caesar is not that king. There's kind of a side principle that I don't know if American Christians really would have known what I was talking about until a few years ago. But that if government isn't God, then politics isn't religion. And what has happened in our society as culture has secularized, people used to find meaning and community and legacy in their churches and in their family. But as all of that has kind of fallen away, as we've atomized as a society, people still have this kind of God-sized hole in their heart. They want purpose. They want meaning. Where are they finding it? The ballot box. The political arena. So you know why when you discuss politics with someone and why in our culture we cannot have discussions. We just have arguments. You know why that is? It's because politics has become ultimate. It's taken the place of religion. And for Christians, we have to be careful of this as well. But basically, people are trying to work out their, their salvation at the ballot box. And when I disagree with you or you disagree with me, that's the new form of blasphemy, of heresy. And so as as American Christians, we must always remember politics is important. I'll explain that. We need to engage. But it is never ultimate. And so Jesus sets out this principle that first, we are Christians. Our ultimate allegiance is always to Christ and his kingdom. Therefore, our allegiance to a candidate, to to a party, is always conditional. The next one that he mentions is that we are Caesar. So we've kind of looked at the back of the coin. Now think about the front of the coin. And as Americans, I think we have a healthy distrust for government. I think, what did Reagan say, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So we have this healthy distrust for power. But Jesus does say, government is God's idea. It's one of the three institutions created by God. The family, the church, and the state. And what, it, what is its purpose? Why did God create government? It's very simple. Twofold reason. First, to punish or restrain evil. And two, to promote good. You see that in Romans 13 as well as 1 Peter 2 where it says, Unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So essentially, Jesus is saying, look, government has a valid role. And you are to provide civic obedience, basic respect to government. Now, Every Christian all around the world has to apply these biblical principles to their form of government. So as American Christians, what does that mean for us? 
And if you've missed U.S. civics, here is U.S. civics. You can forget about U.S. civics and history. It's in one sentence, all right? We live in a republic, meaning we elect our officials, that makes you royal, or citizen sovereigns, and assumes that you're righteous. What does self-government require? It requires self-control. The founders talked about that a lot. And so at the beginning of this, I said, we are Caesar. So in that verse, when Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, who is Caesar in the Roman context? It is the individual with ultimate authority. So let me ask you this question. In the U.S. context, who has ultimate authority? Is it the president? Is it the Supreme Court? Is it Congress? No. What does the Constitution say of the state of Florida, the state of Indiana, the U.S. Constitution? It says, we the people. So in this verse, when I say we are Caesar, what do I mean by that? It means that we have authority. Now, this does not mean that you should go don a sheet and ask your roommates to fan you with palm leaves and feed you with grapes, okay? You can ask Julius Caesar how that went for him, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have authority and therefore responsibility. That our system assumes our principled participation. That if we did not vote, if we did not participate in our public system, our public square, American government would cease to function. And so to kind of go back through that, we're Christians. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. But especially in the American context, we are Caesar. We have authority, and I would argue, therefore, responsibility. I was talking last week with a, a believer from Nigeria, a week before someone from India, and I'm always interested in kind of talking to them about how to apply it in their context. Here it is for ours. The last one I would mention is that we are citizens. And so we've talked about the back side of the coin. We've talked about the front side of the coin. Now we're kind of talking about the side of the coin, meaning, all right, we're as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we go into the public square. What about the separation of church and state? How does all of this work out? So if, and again, we're just talking about the Bible today, and my encouragement to you is to kind of push secular culture, what everybody else has said about this, out of the way. If government's job, back to the basics, if government's job, punish evil, promote good, whose version of good is it supposed to promote and whose version of evil is it supposed to punish? Well, since we're talking about the Bible, God's, okay? (laughs) And essentially, Scripture says, look, there are these two distinct institutions, God-ordained, the church, and the state. And the church's job is to provide moral guidance and wisdom to the state. I love how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He says, the church must be reminded that it is not the master nor the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. So I'm always looking for ways to kind of remember these principles, uh, but also to remember them uh, and to apply them in our lives. And so here's one of the ways that I've kind of come up with explaining this. In the New Testament, how is the church symbolized? It's always symbolized by a light, is it not? And the church's job, fulfill the Great Commission, do good works that point to Jesus. The other institution in the New Testament is the state, and it is symbolized by a sword. And this is a, a Roman short sword called Gladius. I actually didn't tell security, so if somebody's like repelling behind me, it's a prop, okay? All right. And so throughout history, I mean, these are God-ordained institutions. We've talked about their roles. But as humans, we can sometimes mix up God's institutions, right? And so what happened uh, down through the centuries 
is that those in the state are like, you know what, it's really hard to control people. Um, so what if we could come over here and get some of the church's spiritual influence? I mean, isn't it easier to get people to do things or not do, them, do things if you can threaten their head and their soul? <laughs> but then over here in the church, we didn't always do it right either. Because the church, like, you know, making disciples is hard work. So what if we could come over here and get the state's civil, civil authority and say things like, convert or die? All right, and I'm waiting for someone to make like a social media reel of me just doing that. Like, see it in context, everyone, all right? And so what do you get? Thank you. Somebody's awake now. All right. So uh, what do you get when you put together a light and a sword? Well, you get one of these. You get a lightsaber. All right. (laughs) A weapon of terrifying power. I I would never be able to wield one of these. Like, oh, I hacked off my arm yesterday. I'm going to go do a flip with this sizzling laser weapon today. All right. But this, the meaning, the church's God-given spiritual authority and the state's God-given civic authority merged together has been the tyrant's weapon of choice throughout the ages. And the iteration of it, the version of it I'm very concerned about right now, is when government looks at the church and says, your version of marriage is wrong. Your version of gender and identity is wrong and conform. That is essentially taking the lightsaber and saying, It's not your job to provide moral wisdom and guidance to us. And it is exactly backwards. You see how those roles have been flipped in our society? And so as American Christians, we have to be mindful of this. And we have to push back saying, all right, we're going to follow what the Bible says and applying it in our culture. And so we've talked about we're Christians. First of all, our ultimate allegiance and our worship is always reserved for God alone. We are Caesar. We have authority, therefore responsibility. And then we are citizens. Our job is to provide that moral guidance and wisdom, but also to do good works that point to Jesus. And I appreciated Dr. Sisk last night talking about all of the different universities, all of the different hospitals. Um, the last time I did some research on this, that 10 out of the 10 top hospitals in the United States were started by people with religious or Christian motivations. That has been the church's history. Christians down through the ages have not run away from difficult problems. From Daniel in the Old Testament all the way up to someone like Harriet Tubman with more than 30 trips into the south rescuing more than 70 slaves all the way to Martin Luther King Jr. who stood up for equal rights for black Americans. The church has always run towards issues and not away from them. I wanted to bring all of this together uh, with an example And I did not know about this place until recently. Uh, This is called the Eleutherian College. It's actually just about 10 minutes from my house in southeastern Indiana. And this was the first college in the state of Indiana that admitted students regardless of gender or race. It was started in 1850 by pastors. But the more that you study the Eleutherian College, the more you realize it was a college. But more than that, it was a hub for the Underground Railroad. And if you remember the history, in the 1850s, there was something called the Fugitive Slave Law. So as slaves were escaping from the American South into the North, their slave masters could track them into the North and capture them again. Well, these pastors would enroll those escaping slaves, and so when the slave masters showed up, they said, this isn't your slave, it's a student. And in fact, one of these pastors was arrested for violating this Fugitive Slave Law, and those charges were originally thrown out. 
And so this was an example of fellow American Christians, I think, living out these principles together. Now, I will note that these principles, we've talked about that we are Christians, we are Caesar, we are citizens. Sometimes they kind of bump and grind against one another. It's more like a tension. And I often get the question, like, is this really something that we should still be engaged in? Something we should still be doing? Well, let me ask this question. You know, politics, working in the public square is hard, it's difficult. But those of you that are in the dating process, it's hard, right, sometimes? Now, God may give some of you the blessing of singleness, but um, my first relationship here at PCC ended via a voicemail while I was at basketball practice. Like, thank you very much, all right? But if, you know, dating's tough, it's difficult. What is she thinking? What is he thinking? Why do you give me this stupid gift, all right? All right. What, what's the future going to look like? Just because something is hard or difficult, it doesn't mean we stop doing it. That's not how we, we deal with the family and other God-ordained institutions. It's not how we should deal with the church, nor is it the way that we should deal with government. All right, so that's all step number one. I mentioned I wanted to spend a good bit of time there just kind of laying the groundwork. What does God have to say about this area of our lives? Step number two, pray for and build relationships with government officials. Offer prayer for and build relationships with government officials if you're looking for the O. And what I did with this particular step is just, the, all right, what does the Bible say? And if you're looking at how can I be a good student? How can I be a good employee, a good child? What does the Bible say? What are some of the easy things to check off? Well, one that I think is pretty simple, straightforward. You may be familiar with this verse. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Now, let me ask you this. Is this verse a recommendation or is it a command? It is a command. And it's important to note that when Paul wrote this to Timothy, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero killed Christians, his political opponents, and his own mom. Like, who does that? Right? Paul's like, pray for that guy. And so we've done our best in our work to live this out. And I'll admit to you, we started this effort specifically bringing pastors to the state house to pray with their elected officials about three years ago. And I realized that you know, we've, we've been doing stuff, trying to speak truth in the public square, trying to get good people in office, but we've missed this just basic biblical command to pray for those that are in elected office. But it's hard to do that if you don't know who they are, what they care about. And so a couple quick examples. This is our Indiana state house. Uh, we had opportunity to meet with our attorney general. We've held over 175 meetings between pastors and legislators. This is in the executive branch with our attorney general. This is a really fun day. A pastor brought a Christian schools government class down to the state house. We had to meet, had an opportunity to meet with one of the, the justices on the Indiana Supreme Court. And then earlier this year, we had a chance to meet with five denominational leaders along with our governor. And in each of these meetings, we share scripture because we know even if we just get a few minutes, that's the one thing that's not going to return void. We then ask them, what are the worst problems in your area of responsibility or in your district? And then we pray with them. And we want to minister to them as a person, but also in their role as a leader of the state. Like God has called you. Maybe you don't know this, but God has called you. He has ordained you to be a minister for our good in this position. And we want to encourage you along those lines. Now I'm going to ask you a question. And every time I ask it, I always convict myself. And when I'm speaking in churches, it always gets really quiet. And so here's the question. I want you to think about the public official, or I'll just say politician. I often say public servant. But for the, this question, politician. Think about the politician that you love to hate. And may or may not have shared a meme about in the past week. Okay, 
Think about that person. Here's the question. When was the last time that you meaningfully prayed for that person? For their soul, for their family, for wisdom and guidance. And back to what I'm, we're trying to accomplish through our effort is, look, I have really strong opinions in the public square. We'll get to all that tomorrow. But what the Bible, and I love the disciplines that God gives us. God says, you, you're going to go speak truth to this person, but the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is you go pray for them. You know what? It's really hard to hate someone that you're praying for. And so we've, again, intentionally tried to build these relationships. We say that we are a nonpartisan ministry. Not to say that there's a moral equivalency among positions in public life, but we are nonpartisan in the sense that we represent a different kingdom when we come into the state house. So those are a couple of examples. Here's a couple of other questions for you. You didn't know you'd get a quiz today, but here's the quiz. All right, so in your first interaction with your elected officials, you should, and you get to check one. Scream at them while denouncing their heathen ways. All right, that's the first one. Secondly, ask them for special privileges, like a street named after your dearly departed pet parakeet. All right, that's number two. Or three, ask them how you can pray and help. And it is the third one. I mentioned that we are working to try to transform the United States to the power of the gospel. And I'm, I'm privileged to get to work with a number of others. Similar efforts have launched in 15 states. We're prayerfully looking at 25 and then D.C. There are a number of connections to Pensacola Christian here. Um, the individual from Maine, Carol Conley, is also an alumni. I really appreciate Carol. He's built a remarkable relationship with the governor in Maine, who is very different ideologically than him. And they, they have it out all the time. But they pray for one another. They text back and forth just saying, uh, we want to encourage each other. Also, uh, Brian English, who's standing there in the back, who's from Texas. I saw him recently, and his shirt read, um, rumor has it, God is from Texas. <laughs> I'm like, that is such a Texan shirt, sir. Uh, but his, his son is a student here as well. Um, and so I'm just pl- privileged to be able to do this with others. And this is a movement we're trying to take all across the country. Now, if you don't know who your elected officials are, it's kind of hard to pray for them, Right? And so here in Florida, you can simply Google Florida, who are your elected officials. There are a couple different websites. This is the House of Representatives, and you can just type in an address. And so I had typed in um, 250 Brent Lane, the individuals that represent this particular piece of real estate include a state senator um, named Broxon. Also, uh, Michelle Salzman is the state rep. Matt Gates is the U.S. representative, and then Grover Robinson is the mayor of Pensacola. And I often tell Christians, like, if you don't get anything else about what I've said today, there's your prayer list. There's how you follow what God has called us to do, and praying for, building relationships with government officials. Now, I'll often mention to audiences that most Christians are going to have their greatest impact in their own zip code. And so as God calls you out of here, you finish here, you head back to whatever part of the United States um, God calls you to. I encourage you. Most Americans are represented by about six or seven people. Reach out to them. I just wonder sometimes, the Apostle Paul had something that the other apostles did not. He had Roman civitas, or citizenship, and he used it to further his ministry. Like, can you imagine if Paul had, like, the right to vote, and he could contact the people that represent him and say, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to get to know you. I want to share with you the good news of Jesus. And I want to become the person that you trust so that when you have a difficult moral issue, you call me up and say, you're a pastor. What do you think about that? And this is the point that I think as American Christians, we have probably missed the most 
because we kind of do politics like everyone else. But Scripture says, hey, pray for your elected officials. Build relationships with them. I think this has an incredible potential to transform how we engage in the public square. Now, I'm going to get to the rest of it tomorrow with building relationships, um, building partnerships with government, and then doing the hard work, things like elections and such. Now, I'm not done just yet, um, but I have one, one last idea for you. I often get the question of, well, is this something that as Christians we should engage in? Isn't you know, the culture war lost and you know, America's changing very quickly? And I do think about these things often. And recently, I had an opportunity to go see Lincoln's tomb. And if you've never been to Springfield, I was actually surprised Lincoln is not buried in D.C. He's actually buried in Springfield, Illinois. Um, this is a picture of his house that's been preserved. And then a picture of his tomb. He's actually buried under 10 feet of concrete because people tried to steal his body. Um, we have, like, there's a really technical legal term for that. It's called messed up. Like, what? Why are you trying to steal somebody's body? All right, but he's there. And I, so I was going through there, and I came across a speech that I imagine many of you memorized in elementary school. But just thinking about quickly changing times, about a very divisive culture. I look often back to Lincoln, who steered our nation through the Civil War. And I was just reading back through the Gettysburg Address, just kind of casually, and two things jumped out at me. The first one is in that early phrase, and many of you could probably quote it for me, but fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition, all right, meaning the idea that all men are created equal. So America, the United States, is an idea. It always has been. And what is that idea? That all people are created equal. So sometimes people will say, well, you, you want to encourage Christians to get involved in public life. You're like wrapping the Bible in the American flag. No. Is that idea that all people are created equal? Is that an atheist idea? Is that an idea from a different religion? I saw that Ken Ham was here to talk about creation. Where does that idea come from? From Genesis. All people are made in the image of God, and therefore they are of equal dignity and worth. And I think that is why we should encourage Christians to renew their efforts to renew the American experiment. Because this is not wrapping the Bible in the American flag. It's just recognizing that the American flag rests on biblical principles. And it's something that we should steward. It is something that we should encourage in our times. The last thing that Lincoln said in that address he said that there would be a new birth of freedom and that this nation of the people, by the people, and for the people should not perish from the earth. But he used that term, new birth. As Christians, we know that the true hope for freedom in our nation is not just a new birth of freedom kind of in a civic context, but a new birth of freedom, a new birth in Christ. And our goal is to see churches build disciples, people who follow Jesus, and have those disciples go out and impact their zip code. And what if 30 years from now or so, we can transform our nation through the power of the gospel. That's the vision of Christian citizenship in our time. So we'll look forward to picking up with the final two pieces tomorrow. God bless you.